Welcome to Insights of an Eco Artist. I'm Joana Larcão, your host. Today I have with me the interdisciplinary artist Clara Bowie, whose art is driven by the need to understand the built environment and to communicate how it impacts our lives and our own earth. Clara studied developing and developing nations around the world at Franklin University in Switzerland and received a BA in Economic History and Environmental Science. Although after several years teaching in formal and informal settings, Clara did a master's degree in environmental conservation education at New York University, where she focused on marketing and fundraising strategies for non-profit businesses, working at prestigious institutions, including but not limited to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Rainforest Alliance. In 2020, Clara opened the store Cruel and Kind to sell her embroidery and prints promoting the Central Park project. We had a very fruitful conversation about the practice, therefore without further ado, let's dive into the interview. Thank you, Clara, for being here and agreeing to this conversation. And to begin, I just want you to introduce a bit your practice for the ones who don't know your practice. Okay. Um, so I'm a self-taught artist, and I had to look up what it means by practice. Um, besides actually <laughs> making of landscapes and a lot of uh, urban environments, and also a lot of ecological systems. Um, I do research with archival resources and I read a bunch of books. And I also have been inspired by my time spent um, working in environmental conservation education in urban garden programs and around the world uh, in wildlife conservation. And also just as a teacher, I used to be like a classroom teacher. I tried that briefly, but I actually appreciate more um, informal settings. Uh, for education, I feel like you can connect to a person and then you connect to the material when you're like at a museum, right? And you remember that field trip 20 years later, more so than when you're in a classroom and you're just like memorizing things. So that's what I do. You were an art teacher? No, uh, I taught uh, environmental ethics at a, oh. an school in, in Spain, um, in Sevilla. And uh, I also taught English when on a year abroad, a gap year to kids. So that's cool. <laughs> so as a self-taught artist, can you lead us through the journey to be, yeah. to be uh, an artist? Sure. Um, so I didn't really start making art full-time until 2018 when I left uh, an abusive partner and uh, that was really bad and after like two weeks of kind of like moping around and being like super depressed I started working on a project that I had um, already started to repair an antique ottoman that my dog had chewed up the corner and um so I repaired that corner and just like fixed the seam and then she ate it again because she's a bulldog and that's what <laughs> and so I just was so frustrated that I ended up like sewing her face onto the corner of it and I was like okay agreement right this is like we're sharing this but like you can't eat this now because I've been working on this and had this in front of me and she seemed to understand and then the cats were like mm. I'm going to, you know, they, they destroyed the ottoman over time. Um, but it was basically just trying to repair this antique piece 
Um, I'd always been interested in fiber art and uh, textile history um, from a very young age. I remember learning that the color purple was the imperial color and that it was made from uh, sea, not seashells, sea urchins. And I was very interested in the changing fashions in the court of Henry VIII over the course of like six wives from six different countries. There were changes in the adornments and styles. And um, yeah, I've always been interested in the economy around uh, textile production and uh, in fashion to a certain extent, but I'm plenty comfortable in like sweatpants and, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. And I presume that your last project about the U urban park activism was connected with that. In some ways. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the table runner, uh, the Central Park table runner is a little bit more like a haute couture fashion interior design. Um, that piece was, I would say, a really good example of how I, how I process my art in that I, it takes me sometimes like a really long time to figure out what I want to do with a piece of inspiration or history. I'm very, very fascinated by Frederick Law Olmsted who designed Central Park and all of Boston's parks and probably, you know, any Americans hearing this, like probably their favorite park. He designed all the parks. He invented a field and then he did all the work. It is kind of insane to think about. But uh, the Central Park Table Runner, I started the week after my grandfather died and he was born in Brooklyn, uh, you know, to, he was a first generation American, uh, Sicilian heritage and his story was pretty insane in a good way. He paid for civil, uh, civil engineering school by working as a chef at the Waldorf. And then he paid for Yale architecture school by working as an EMT wow. and was, um, so inspiring to me. And he taught me, uh, how to cook. Um, he didn't teach me the, like the carpentry or engineering things because girl, and honestly, I'm so grateful for what he did teach me that it doesn't really matter, but it really cut it cut me when he died because I lost not only him, but his knowledge. And I had just started to teach myself those things. And I really wanted to learn what he had known and I, and I wasn't going to get a chance. And so I just threw myself into work because that's what I do. Um, and uh, I very quickly realized that it was not going to be something that I was going to like complete and then feel better about everything. I was like, it's a long project. And I was thinking about, well, you know, it would be great. First of all, Table Runner was the idea because I just think that like New York from the sky looks like a weird long table with a table runner in it. And that's one of the reasons why that satellite image is so stirring because there's that stark contrast between nature and then the urban area around it. And you can really see what we've done to the planet um, in stark um, uh, terms. And uh, so when I was working on this, I was like, well, well, I can have a dinner party, right? Um, and I was like, who will I invite? You know, well, they should be alive because this game in my head, like I have to motivate myself. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, like Dan Barber, obviously I want to invite Dan Barber because he's a huge inspiration to me. He is a food journalist and a chef who has brought global, sustainable cultivation strategies and techniques and technologies to his kitchens with like really amazing staff. And, um, you know, his, his work has been very inspiring to me. Like he's kind of Italian, <laughs> like, but he's not, he's just, he food as much. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I realized like, no, I don't actually want to use this for like a meal. I'm going to destroy it, but what can I do with it? And I realized, you know, I'm not educated by an institution and I don't see me selling this for enough that just paying the taxes is not going to be like a total pain. So I, maybe I can do something charitable with it and honor my grandpa. And I thought, you know, well, you know, your grandpa would love if there was food growing in Central Park. And, you know, I looked into it and I've been working on it for three years now and there's no food growing in Central Park and there never has been. And it's a historic landmark and I respect everything that they do and all the staff there and what it represents. But at the same time, I think that there should be food there. Uh, I think that there should be food growing in most urban parks. And I feel like Central Park is the glass ceiling of sustainable food systems. It is uh, very much a product of the patriarchy. Um, one of the reasons why the park for project first became successful was because the ice skating rink was like the hot singles place to be. Um, and it still functions as a hub for very high powered, um, very wealthy individuals, as well as like a recreational uh, place. But I think just like food, you know, it, how we produce it and how we consume it is such an integral part of how we impact the environment. And if people were to just see people growing food in Central Park, that would be, that could change their perspectives and over time change the world. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it is just about that image, you know, um, you know, I want to, I'm making this table runner. I'm going to curate a table setting with an indigenous artist. I have to find an indigenous artist. Um, you know, Manhattan was from the Manahatta tribe, um, or, you know, a, a Mexican indigenous would be great too, but I really want to work with artists who have really strong investments in land as well as art. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I want to just have a photo session with food activists and then send that to Central Park, the Central Park Conservancy. I'm going to write a, you know, a budget and a proposal and send it to them and be like, if you auction off this table runner and use it for a garden, you know, like, I think I can establish like a trust, you know, this might take my whole life to do. But that this is that's the urban park activism that you're referring to. And it is kind of a complicated story, but um, it's still very new. I've only been working on it for three years. So I, I understand the timetable that I'm dealing with on that. It seems a very a big project and you have an art piece that is a satellite view of the park. Right. And then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you're trying mm-hmm. to connect that with growing food in the Central Park because you believe it would bring people together, it would be a bridge to be people together and to be more environmental and conscious about the land, right? Yeah, and you could always do like grants with a program like that. Like yeah. there's gonna, it's, it's gonna be competitive. Um, you know, you could have people sharing what they learn. Um, and what would be really cool is just that in today's environment, our climate zones are shifting to such an extent that like the Farmer's Almanac doesn't really um, work uh, in the same way, that's the system, like, I don't, uh, you know, weather patterns are very difficult to predict, but seasons were generally more stable. And now we're having these changes yeah. in the temperature. And so certain species are not, I'm not saying that they're becoming invasive. I'm saying that they 
are more adaptable in different areas. And if there was experimentation in Central Park, especially if there was good documentation and there's a very strong scientific community there, I think that they could gain a lot of knowledge from that and a lot of attention for the Central Park Conservancy. It would still be doing its job. But obviously, they would need to see like a huge wave of like public attention because every single person that I've told about this project has had the same response, more or less. It's like, you want to grow food in Central Park? Wow, that's amazing. Good luck. Like it's, (laughs) they yeah, but they don't believe that it can happen because they think that it hasn't been done before. But that is the dumbest reason to not think that something can't be done in the future. Um, so I'm just trying, I'm just going to try for the rest of my life. And that's where we are uh, on that project, but I'm, it's really worthwhile. So I feel lucky to have found a project that I can really kind of build community around for the rest of my life. That's what yeah. I want to do. Yeah. yeah. And that weaves with, uh, with something you said in, a, in our last conversation that you wanted your practice to be the hammer and build bridges and not yourself as yeah. an artist. I think it builds quite well. Yes. Uh, it does. And so, yeah, that's just a part of it. Part of that is kind of like me trying to verbalize how I feel about my personal identity in, in terms of like my family upbringing. My parents were very different. I come from, you know, as I said, like Sicilian background and, and then on the other side, an Alsatian uh, German backgrounds, Alsace-Lorraine in, in Germany, and my family is very industrial. And efficiency, you know, uh, efficiency versus resilience um, is was kind of the, the, the main conflict in my life growing up, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a long time, and eventually I found art, so I've been trying to be like super duper efficient, like, okay, I'm doing the research, I'm doing the design, I'm going from design to the product, I'm going from the product to the website, I'm doing the marketing now, and even beyond like all the external activities of being art, like promoting and research and all those things, like actually making art is physically exhausting. I can't do the Central Park table runner, like sewing those French knots for more than like six hours in a row, or I'm going to break my body. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to evolve a more resilient art style where my art can be effective and impactful, but I'm not using my body like a tool and then like putting it away in a closet and then not doing the other things for myself that like, cause I'm not a tool <laughs> in English. Oh, if you know in English, it means kind of like a jerk, but I'm not a tool in either sense. And I have to treat myself that way. And uh, it also means evolving the materials that I use, how I source the materials using upcycled materials, Um, and also the type of design that I make, who can receive it and how can they receive it? Um, what I've been doing is really time consuming and particular and only affordable for certain people, but I'm working on a methodology that is more resilient in terms of, in terms of being easier on my body, using more upcycled resources, and hopefully it will be cheaper to sell to other people and will still be meaningful because it's going to be abstract art. I'm working on rust impressions and processing some industrial concepts in a new way. Um, and that will, that will be sharing on that publicly for quite some time because I'm trying to be methodical about it. But I'm trying to evolve a new, more resilient art practice and have these pieces once they're done, like they can be the hammer. Someone can show someone else a piece of art and be like, look at this and what it represents. But I don't 
like have to break my body or the planet to do that. So I'm working on it that way. Yeah, I, I think I totally agree with you. We have, as artists, we have to be very careful because especially when you deal with physical art, sculpture or painting that is very physical, sometimes we take our body to the extreme and then the prices of the, that artwork rises because yeah. of the time we spend with it. But it's very important not, not to be too, it's important to be evolved in a, in a piece you are doing, but not so much that you forget everything else. Like you go in a tunnel vision and you forget everything around you. So I, I think it's, it's, it's quite important. And you actually had um, a quote on your, I think it was your bio that said that your practice is driven by the need to understand the build environments. What do you mean by it? Yeah. So it's really, you are in Lisboa, right? You're in Portugal. I'm in Portugal, but, but I'm in the north of the country near Spain. Okay. So I'm in America. I don't know how many miles apart that is. We're very far apart, but we're still in nature right now. Yeah. We're still in a natural environment, the way that I understand it. You know, everything around us, we've built houses or we've built roads or streets. They're basically just like a fancy beehive. Everything around us is natural. It does not mean it's sustainable. Yeah. So when I say studying the built environment, I basically am just trying to understand how Uh, our surroundings are a reflection of how we relate to each other and how we exploit land or people or communities. You know, there isn't such a thing as, you know, like satellite cities. And that's like, they, they can't exist without that other city. And like the concept of that is very similar to ecology where you have hopefully more symbiosis and no parasites. Um, but, you know, our, Yeah, when you, you walk through a space, it educates you on what that space is for. If it's been designed well, if it's in wild space, it can still do the same thing. Um, and I love being in wild places where it's just kind of like a great expanse or immense chaos, like a jungle is that you can't read it. But you there's still like if you were to go up in a helicopter, you could spot the same species of trees and you could see how they're grouping together. We, we've disrupted that, but it's still nature that we're living in. So Yeah. Do you think that because we as a society and as individuals destroyed so much of the ecosystem and traditions, do you think it's, it's difficult to look at a place and understand what it's all about? What's the culture behind it? What's the tradition behind it? I think honestly, as much as it's, we've destroyed the habitat and the environment, what you said about destroying tra traditions may actually be more significant for this because how we tell stories and how we pass yeah. down those become an integral part of how we form our own identity and how we uh, look at other people and whether or not we are willing to receive information from people that we don't identify with. And so traditions are important for understanding the self and the other and um, protecting the things that we need but yeah we don't we're really disconnected from each other and that might be because we're disconnected from the environment you think that is changing you think that is an, a new wave that is changing that traditions are coming up again we are trying to connect to nature connect with other individuals or do you think it's yeah. the same uh i mean honestly it, it's both it's not the same i think that there's a new 
I don't want to say it because it's not a nice word, but there's like a new like desperation for green space. You know, I think that like, you know, green wealth is going to be a form of wealth in the future. Like whether it's like my house is covered in house plants or like I have a huge lawn or I have, you know, a rooftop garden or whatever it is. Like these are the luxuries of the future, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm so focused on landmark parks because we need them and we need them to be spaces for recreation and peace. Like you just go to the park and you sit there, but we are absolutely going to need more places open to growing food um, in the future. It's more flexible, it's more resilient, it's more of a diversified portfolio of food stability. You know, it's that simple. And food stability right now in the, a, a lot of countries, it, it is a problem. So if we start building these areas where we are cultivating and people actually understand what farming is, maybe we can do something different and try mm -hmm. to find systems that correlate to that. Because when you have water shortage, uh, where the climate is changing, agriculture is the first to take the hit. So if we, we, can, we could find something I know there is a project, actually, I think it's, I don't want to be wrong, but Switzerland, that is underground uh, food, it's not a food storage, they grow food there, but it's, it's a new project that basically they are not using the land above, but the land below the surface. Yeah. I can't remember much more than that, but it's it was an, a new, innovative way of planting food. So if the land above is not good for food, they are doing it underground, basically. This is this this sounds to me like how the Swiss use parking garages. They are all underground. The parking, parking garages. Yeah. Yeah. You put yeah. them up. You put other stuff on top, and you don't have to make it concrete underground. I'm going to look into that. Um, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, it's about sustainability and resilience, as that goes. Yeah, and you have been a recipient of a Network New York grant for professional development. What can you tell us about that experience? Um, so I debated whether or not to talk to you about this, and I'm not going to say anything, but this is unfortunately kind of a me too moment. I was asked by somebody to write the grant proposal for a $15,000 grant for professional development. And I wrote the grant to have environmental specialists come and talk about the financial implications of climate change for different industrial sectors, which I was like, that would be so cool. I had a lot of connections through a lot of corporate people in my life and also through the Explorers Club, in, which is based in New York and has a very large membership basis of people who are corporate and environmental. And I wanted to get their um, instruction. And I wrote this grant. We received the funding and the person who asked me to write the grant informed me that he had two other men like waiting in the wings who were designing an app that was both a dating app and a professional networking app so that you could go into a networking event and see on the same app, someone as a professional and a sex object. If you just switch to the other interface What? and I realized that I was the token female, they hadn't told me about this. And I was like, I'm sorry, but I reserved the option to walk into any room and not have sex on the table. And I cannot agree to do this. And uh, so I dropped out and they took the funding. I don't know what happened there, but that was, What? yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a little sad. I have never talked about that publicly, but I know that I made the right decision and it's not even worth mentioning these, 
young things who were so they thought they found the I don't think the app worked very well either unfortunately but it's it's a weird concept as you explained the professional side in way in one way yeah. and then flip it and it's a sex app it's a bit it's weird. very it's very exclusive daters who only want to date people if they're at networking events that they're like oh these people are good enough for me uh okay yeah Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, anyway, moved past part of the reason why I left New York, yeah. honestly. So, um, but things have been, I haven't, I haven't experienced anything like that in a long mm -hmm. time. That That's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on, in the recent contemporary atmospheres, do you think we are shying away from conflict, creating these bubbles where different opinions are misunderstood, to say the least? Um, yeah, so I actually, I took some time thinking about this uh, as a history major in, in uh, college, you know, I took a whole class on like, what is a nation? And we learned, you know, it's human nature and throughout human history, we have built our own, we've constructed our own identities of tribes and nations and families by contrasting ourselves against the other, right? And that is not bad. It's healthy to have shared values and a shared identity with people around you. It makes people like happier and healthier in so many ways. And, you know, that's like the traditions that we were just talking about. Like, that's how you come up with those traditions in a lot of ways. But, you know, over time, we have become very efficient technocrats, which is to say that we've used our, you know, amassed human knowledge to create technological systems that make decisions for us. And we have these systems that reinforce really unrealistic parameters. Like if you were to break yourself down into like a checklist or a, a list of hashtags, this is almost a way that we have been objectified in terms of our interests. And there's no way that we can realistically fit into any one of these, but when we try and then we interact with someone who has been designated other, it really, it leads to really toxic reactions because we have been in a reinforced sound bubble. And we've also, because we've been for the most part in engaging with each other um, digitally, we have not got the same experience talking to somebody in an actual room and being able to like read their body language or the body language of the friends that are there with them who are like, you know, you, and engaging in that level of communication. And we are not as good at talking to each other. We are out of practice um, of listening, listening also for certain. And uh, yeah, that's just been reinforced. Yeah. Because something you mentioned, we lost the ability to read other people's body language. And that's a very important aspect of communication. And I think actually the COVID just worsened that because people are just inside. They get nervous around crowds. So we created these bubbles. Now there is a bit of an atmosphere where people are trying to understand and be more mm -hmm. understandable of other cultures and traditions and, and genders and identifications. But still there is we normally choose our friends or the people we are engaged with in terms of if they agree normally, normally, if they agree yeah. with our point of view, if we are not going to have a confrontation. And actually, when we have a confrontation with someone or we're having 
a heated uh, argument that it's always viewed as a bad thing and not as a good thing. I was in Ireland. I had this friend, he's Indian, and we have these you know, philosophical conversations. And we had we shared the same studios, or our studios were next to each other. And we once we are having this a gigantic conversation about a religion and stuff like that, and because we are having such heated conversation, people were thinking we are having a discussion. So they just came over and said, like, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, we're just having a conversation. We don't agree with, uh, we're agreeing the same topics because we are from completely different cultures, but we understand, we, we respect each other so we can have this conversation. And I think me and him grew up so much from this interaction, this truthful interaction, even though we didn't agree in a lot of things. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, you're so wise. Um, yeah, sometimes unpleasant things are basically, um, and having unpleasant conversations can be crucial to your well-being. And um, you know, I, I, as far as um, you know, pop culture goes, I watched that Netflix series, Inventing Anna, over the weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it too there that like sent chills up my spine. I wrote it down for this interview, um, for this question yesterday. And it's just that we have the human tendency to only remember failures and to only reward perfection. And when you look at an algorithm system, which is supposed to put content in front of you and get likes or get engagement, if you don't like the, let's say like the you know side characteristics of the the computer's trying to show you content they're trying to get you to use the platform first of all so they're going to try you to show you content that's similar to what you already follow and then they may branch out a little bit from that but if that little branch if you don't like engage with that content that they put in front of you they're going to assume this because you don't like it not that you just like it didn't impress you or it didn't like engage you and then the system is going to assume oh that's bad and that's it's like a, it's a binary decision you either you like the content or you don't and the system doesn't have the ability to perceive that we are reacting to other people's lives in terms of these absolutes of like oh that was a failure that post was a failure you're a failure that story was a failure i'm not going to engage with you anymore and we only reward perfection like beyonce i mean obviously she deserves it but like there's i how does she exist how does she exist because these systems reward her for her perfection and she is perfect but that's not like reachable for people in general. And it's really unhealthy, especially when you're not just talking about art and is the art valuable, but like, is the person valuable? Like we are, we've become dismissive of each other as people because we're confronted with like people on a screen, yeah. so many screen, get out of the way. What am I trying to do here? So it's just, it's too easy to dismiss each other. Now for a more difficult question. What are your insights into the importance of art as a tool to raise awareness of social and ecological problems? This was a really actually easy question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we kind of talked about it already a little bit. Um, I, you know, I think that anybody who practices art, um, and I think that more people should have the time and the freedom to practice art 
and should be doing it in school, of course, and unfortunately it doesn't happen. I think any person who practices art seriously is going to educate themselves about the materials that they're using and they're going to learn about natural resources. If they stick to it, they're going to learn about natural resource management and they're going to learn about supply chain management. Like being an artist during the pandemic and not being able to get your hands on a supply because the global supply chain has broken down has been a very educational experience for many of us. Many of us have been trying to tell people like for Christmas last year, like our stuff is not on a cargo ship, like buy from us, buy local. And then we've been educating the customers and the people in our network uh, about these issues. Um, I think that it's really crucial for accumulated human knowledge that we are engaging with the environment around us and being creative in a non-destructive way, which basically art is for the most part. Like you can be, you can tear down a building and put up a new one that's creative, but it's also destructive. But you can, you know, take materials and put them together and teach yourself and build yourself as well as building like a material object that you can engage with and observe and continue to learn from even after you've made it, I think. Yeah, totally agree. Can you name an artist or artwork that you believe does that? So there's two artists that I follow. Um, one is actually native to Portugal. Her name is Vanessa Barago, and she uses uh, scrap textile materials and fabrics to create these massive hand-woven coral reefs. And uh, she's pretty amazing. I am not jealous of her, which means... I'm a little envious. I'm glad she has what she has. I would like some of it too, but I'm not. So I think that's the distinction between jealousy and envy or enviousness, I guess. The, the work that she does educates on corals and, you know, sea, uh, especially, you know, Portugal is a uh, mostly, it's a lot of uh, coastline, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a very strong tradition there. And then in Africa, there's Janet Ormond and she's super cool. Her work is... Um, I would imagine very finicky and fiddly because she finds uh, plastic that has washed up on the beach and then she turns it into sculptures. And so her, her thing is called curb ocean, curb beach plastic. And so, I, I mean, I hope I can afford her work someday. And it's great because you, when you support her, you're supporting the environment. You're taking these pollutants out of the system and you're turning it into art. And um, both of these artists are very focused on the sources of the, the materials for their art, I would say. I would also just say like, you know, a lot of authors are artists, I would say, but I, I don't know if they hold themselves apart because they use words and not anything else. Um, but I read a book that I was uh, telling you about, I believe it's called A Perfect Red. It's about the, the history of how we sourced red dye for fabrics and paints and things like that. And, you know, she went from back to like the eighth, ninth century to now. And there's just this one insect that grows on the prickly pear cactus in, you know, Central America. And that was, you know, as much as, you know, people came to the Americas for land or for political freedom, they came to grow that plant and harvest that bug and make that dye. And, you know, that dye was actually um, so red and so expensive that people banned poor people from, from using it. Something called the oh. sumptuary for a long time, you know, like the same way that purple was the imperial color, red became the power 
the powerful color and it still is it's a very powerful color on its own but to find it in nature and have it be like a stable dye that can be uh grown and produced you know at scale is very interesting but then you know one of my the my favorite thing that i learned from this book was that like they the system of colonization and agriculture started to fail when they relied on monoculture this insect does better on this plant when it's in a diverse field of multiple plants, not when it's prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear, because then they become, you know, very susceptible to disease or to predation. And, you know, the, there's, when you study materials this deeply, you just, you learn a lot about human history and um, the world beyond your studio. Yeah. And I think that's, I wouldn't say the problem, but the complication of uh, environmental practice is that you have to be, you have to know a lot about materials and you have to be very precise about what you use and how you extract the materials. It can be a very slow practice, actually. And I think I, I feel that a lot, but also you, you have to take a lot of time to investigate how we're going to do a piece and use these materials and how you, you're going to use them and not extort yourself. Like I work by hand in stone and wood, not as much now, but I used to, to, to do everything by hand on stone and wood. And I had this conversation with my friends that it was, I would take so much time doing a piece that I wouldn't produce. And it was always something that stayed in my mind because one piece takes so much of me because I, it's a physical labor. That's why I, I shifted a bit now to clay and, and painting stuff like that, because I have so many things in my list that if I take so many time in just one piece, just it's infuriating, <laughs> but it's something you have to consider. And sometimes you, you have to adjust even when you are trying to find paints and do natural paints, I do natural paints. And blue, it's just impossible to find. And red, impossible to find. Otherwise, you have to buy it. But you just, you have to adjust somehow and make compromises, but not in a moral sense. When you are doing, you're trying to be environmental conscious. When you decide to do a practice like that, we should not consider if other people, oh, you are not producing as much, you know, you're taking a lot of time. You, sh you have this paint from the store, just use them or use the machines. We, you know, you have the machines, use the machines for sculpting. So it, the compromises I've learned to do are not moral. So I'm doing yeah. a piece that is environmental conscious and I'm trying to appeal to the protection of the environment. So I don't want to use mass produced yeah. paints, but... When I'm working in clay, I just consider if, if I start extracting clay from the ground, it's just impossible. So I have to make a compromise there, but make a compromise there and be conscious on other areas of my practice. It's a, ba it's a balancing act. And it's also really important to not get so critical that you just like stop producing at all. Um, and that's, even if we weren't talking about art, like, you know, people in the past when I told them that I was an environmental educator, they kind of were like, oh, I think this is before people realized like, oh, climate change affects me too. And now they're kind of like, oh yeah, can you fix this for us? But you know, back then I had to be like, it's okay. I have never lived in a tree. I don't wear shirts made of leaves. I fully believe that like the people who like truly live in the wild and are separate 
from cities, they may have a very sustainable lifestyle, but because of their sustainable lifestyle, we don't know how they're doing it. We don't know what they're doing. They're disconnected from us and that is their own way of being sustainable, but that's not how I operate. I need community. Most people need community. So it makes sense to find a way to live sustainably with others. And, you know, you can't, you know, just shut down the second that someone mentions that they do something that's not sustainable. That's a great way to alienate someone. And then you've missed an opportunity to connect with a new person as opposed to like preaching to the choir, which is, you know, a lot of what happens because of the algorithm is preaching to the choir. And in real life, it's, I don't know, I really enjoy talking to strangers. So, although you're starting to feel like less of a stranger. Um, <laughs> so going back, going back to you, in 2020, you open your own shop called Cruel and Kind. Mm-hmm. Did I say it right? Where did the idea came from? So cruel is the old English word for hand embroidery. Okay. And the name was essentially a pun on a play of words on that, but also the fact that I have a very strong sense of friendship and allyship to the people with me on this planet. And I would like to be honest with them. And I know that is hard to hear sometimes, but you know, you got, I like, I'm definitely the friend that will tell you like you have chocolate on your nose. Like I will pull you aside from a group of people and tell you, whatever it is, you know, I try not to criticize people in public, but I do, I definitely, I don't care enough if they are upset with me for being the messenger. And that is mostly a good thing, but I am working on trying to always be kind. And then also just my store has, you know, an assortment of things when you say, you know, that's just an expression, like a store or something in kind. You know, uh, I may rebrand at some point. I'm definitely focused on environmental works. I think that people understand that the message, like the written messages are often, you know, it's hard to read, but important that you do. And that is kind of how communication with a good friend, I think sometimes can be like that. But I don't want to be, I would like to be more inspiring than cruel. I wouldn't say that that's cruel because friends, I think, entitles that you are honest when you have a friend that you, I don't know, you have spinach in your in your teeth and they say nothing. It's like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> I just embarrassed myself and you just said nothing. I'm, I think I suffer, let's say suffer again in parenthesis from the same as you, because as a friend, I'm very honest. I just, and I like my friends to be honest with me. So sometimes I, I might seem cruel in my type of language. So I, I something that I have to work to be able to be less cruel in my language because language for me is something very important. So I like to use the words as they were supposed to be used. So <laughs> sometimes I come across a bit too strong. But I think friends are for that. Mm-hmm. Constructive criticism is really important. And I definitely know the importance of being a teacher. And also my, my mom was a teacher. And so I learned about that concept very early. But um, yeah, definitely. We, we need room to grow, but we need other people to help us grow in the right directions. So there's a balance between that. And I'm just trying to um, convey that with the brand. Yeah, so it sounds really, really interesting. Do you sell your work? 
Uh, do you have other people work exposed on, on the job? Just yours? Everything's me. I do the marketing. I do. Um, I wouldn't say that I hire product photographers, but I have worked with Full, Full Circle Fine Art Gallery in Baltimore. They've done really high resolution images of the Boston Tapestry, um, my self-portrait, and the uh, Domino Sugar Triptych. It's the thing about fiber is that because it's in a helix, it reflects light in an inconsistent way. And you need a really, 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 really powerful lens to pick up all the detail. Otherwise it just blurs. So they do a really good job, but that's, yeah. Oh, and I've worked with, I hired, um, I hired someone to redo my website. You know, that was an important investment, but other than that, I don't, I don't have teammates. Just work yeah. by, by yourself. And in your mm -hmm. studio, do you work alone? I have my animals here, but that's it. No, I, I've, you know, my, my place that I have now, I've considered, you know, setting up like a sewing circle or something like that. You know, I'm, I don't have a problem making new friends. I've moved around too much to be afraid of talking to like any stranger, most strangers, some, some strangers are a little scary. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a lot of crafts people in DC and I actually was looking for a sewing studio. Like I can think like a makerspace in Baltimore, there's open works and they have like a sewing studio. I wasn't able to find a single one in DC. There are fabrication studios that have spaces for carpentry or like 3d printing or CNC router carving, but there's no, and then there was a place that was like, it's for sewing classes and you can sit around and like, you know, you, do a, a class together, but there's not a single space that I could find in Washington, DC, that is a sewing lab. So I don't know, maybe I could do something like that. I just, it would be nice to have, I mean, I had to go and buy like a big folding table, you know, and that's what I've been working off of. And I have a, you know, a back screen in porch where I'm going to end up doing more carpentry work in the future. But um, yeah, it's just me here for now. I had hoped to hire an intern, but that may change because I've started applying to like part-time jobs and I'm starting this weekend at a farm farmer's market selling microgreens, which is great because I love to talk to people about food. <laughs> yes, please. Amy to talk to people about food and uh, gardening and you know greens and stuff so just me for now so how do you manage between your art your shop your networking so you don't have a team that does all the work for you or helps you so how does your day look like well first of all my day can be different you know, depending on what I'm working on, but the tools that I use to organize my time are pretty simple. I have a daily to-do list that I do every morning and I have three whiteboards. I have a small whiteboard that's just, I call it my pipeline. And that's any idea that I have fully conceived it through to the point of it being a product that I'm going to make. Like I, there's a vector, I know what it's gonna look like in the end and it's got a name. Like I put it up on that pipeline. Anything else is just kind of swir swirling around in my brain. I have a whiteboard that's just like a day of the week thing and I put my appointments on there. And then I have, my biggest whiteboard is long-term goals and also uh, appointments more than two months out. 
that I need to keep in mind or prepare for. So, you know, like I mentioned, I want to find, I would like love to find uh, an interior design curator from the indigenous community. And so I want to reach out to the, you know, the Museum of the American Indian, which has an office in DC and New York incidentally, which is really great. So they might have somebody who's a New Yorker and they could work on this project with me. And that would be amazing because I don't want to be a New Yorker again, ever. But, you know, there's, there's, uh, you can break down big goals into manageable chunks, and then it's just a matter of keeping track of them. And I also keep my place very clean. And, you know, I clean my studio pretty regularly. As far as the day goes, you know, I'm up at like six, between six and seven. I take my dog Teddy out to pee, and then she goes back to sleep. And then I work on whatever is the most important thing for that day first my brain is most productive between the hours of like 9 30 and 12 30 and I learned in grad school that if I wanted to like write a term paper I had to sit down and start writing before nine and then you know like start writing like a an outline or whatever and then I would just just fall into it you know there's usually tv show or something on in the background and not music because I'm a very musical person and I find I cannot sit still and I cannot not sing the music if I know the words um so I just and then you know we have tv on in the background that's a little like pop culture you get like daily news or whatever and it's just like murmur in the background and yeah kind of it's kind of like going to a cafe and writing yeah seems and like just it. yeah a little bit like like slight commotion can be um just jarring enough to have you kind of fall into like a just stream of consciousness and just you know, f- fall out of your self-analytical brain and kind of just be part of the space. I do my embroidery earlier in the day. I generally don't embroider anything after like five or six because my eyes are really tired. And, uh, oh yeah, the last thing I do is that I, I plan for my social media out like months in advance. Like I sit down at the beginning of the year and I write down a list of all of the like PR days that like lobbyists have like, it's National Donut Day. And like, I don't have a thing for National Donut Day, but you understand what I mean. And then I try to be flexible on that because things do come up and, you, and you've got to be flexible. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I take on a lot. So I do try to be flexible with social media more than anything else. When you have a lot going on, you just have to learn to be flexible because if you're like, no, I have my day planned and it has to be this. And I'm going to be so mad at the end of the day if I don't finish this. I used to be like this. I swear, it's just, I had everything planned and it was like, you know, like a moving train. So, and I paid for that. I paid for that. So now I just, I'm like, I'm like you, I have one blackboard where I have my to do this, to do for the day. <laughs> and I have like my Google calendar is just full. So I, I have it all scheduled for the week because I'm, I'm like you, I have, I have the writing and I have the, the sculpting and the painting. So it just has to be everything planned out. I'm trying to find more time to network because it's, as an artist, it's very, very important. We all know that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great that you just, you have, you know, when it's your most productive time, because I think it's very important to know that because when you don't know that, it's just like, I know I'm not a morning person, but then you do all the work at night and you, you see that nothing gets out of your hands. 
maybe just because you are a morning person, but you're just lazy enough to wake up. So maybe just wake up a bit early, do the morning and just maybe rest in the afternoon. I don't know. But being flexible is a very important aspect. And so is natural light. Yeah. Yeah. Totally yeah. agree. So as an artist, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment? Right now, I would say the fact that I haven't given up on the Central Park piece. <laughs> I'm going to continue to be proud of that accomplishment until it's done, which is going to be a long time. And then other than that, I got the, uh, the Emerald Necklace Conservancy and the Garden Club of the Back Bay in Boston to agree to auction off prints of my Boston tapestry for fundraising oh. and for that is actually going to pay for like public parks and maintaining the city and stuff like that. That's exciting to me. That's, I feel like that's a big deal. No, they're very organizations. The fact that they like even talked to me at all is a big deal. How I feel. So yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that seems, that seems amazing. Thank you. What is for you the biggest challenge we face as individuals? and environmental artists navigating the current state of things? Well, it's two things, and they're exact opposites of each other. One is burnout, you know, pushing yourself so hard that you break your body or your mind, and then it takes time. Sorry, my dog is scratching to come out of okay. the bedroom. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's either burnout and you're just pushing yourself, abusing your body or exploiting your body. Like, it's not a natural resource. It's a very finite resource. Or... The opposite, which is just coasting on good intentions, you know, like, and I realize that the work that I have done and am doing, you know, like the Central Park piece is, first of all, does not feel like coasting. I'm working very hard. Second of all, you know, it is, it is for a concrete, specific good that I can identify and explain to other people in an elevator pitch. You know, I'm not just like trying to be sustainable and, and, and letting it go at one action or one idea. It is, it's like a constant practice of trying to integrate my awareness of my impact on my surroundings with my need to be sustained as like a human, to be fed uh, physically and spiritually and uh, intellectually, however else you want to look at it. So that's, those are the two things that they're in pretty direct opposition but honestly it just being honest with myself and being honest with other people seems to be the solution to that I think people respect when you tell them I'm burning out you know they understand what that means and I, it's been a long time for me to since I've had an experience like that but definitely in New York I was so burnt out when I left and uh it's really in but then arguably you know I wasn't even making art yet so, you know, I don't know if that could have been the right city for me, probably not, but you know, like the practice that I, that I have making the art and processing these ideas and then making these images or objects that I can share with other people is a way for me to, to like self-actualize and to not coast on wanting to be an environmental person or environmental educator. Like I'm actually doing it and it, it takes work, but you have to set boundaries. That's hard. Yeah. You have to be concerned about those boundaries and that's harder. So, yeah. yeah as an artist, we, we, we are artists because we are very sensitive people. That's why I, I see when I look at someone who is an artist or a writer or a musician. So emotions take us a bit harder. I don't want to generalize, but most of us do our practice and 
we let our emotions dissolve in our practice, even if we are not doing that on purpose. But yeah. that's that's why when people say that being an artist is a choice, I become very angry because it's not a choice. <laughs> it's something that we were born with and we have such a high sensitive to emotions, to people around us, to topics. If we don't participate on that, if we, we do not go to the studio and do the work, some, something is always missing. When I, I'm not working in my studio or I'm not being productive in my art practice, not my writing, my art practice. And yeah, you just have to be very careful with burnouts and stuff like that because when you are always taking you are always taking and putting in your practice and or in your writings and you are always moving. It just can be very extenuating. Now we have a culture that being busy is not the thing because it used to be like, I'm busy. I'm- People used to say I'm busy instead of I'm popular. It kind of felt like for a while, yeah. like I'm too popular to spend time with you was I'm too busy to say yes. Maybe like half an hour before that event starts, you can check in with me and I'll tell you if I'm available. Right. But that's not realistic. Yeah. But now I think things move a bit and now it's a more of people like to go outside and take time to, to be outside, to be with friends. And some people have like, they move to, um, how do you call that a house with wheels? What do you call that? The word just a tiny home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they can move they can move and be outside and not be only in the oh. office. Oh, you mean an RV? Yeah. A rec- yeah. Okay. Yeah. But tiny home, that's like a, exactly the same thing, but it's even one step past. Instead of living in a car, people have made homes that are basically like a wagon that you can drag behind your car. Um, yeah, I love those. I hope to have one someday. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have, you know, a small home in a giant yard. And I think, you know, the pandemic has definitely pushed people to be more grateful for the time spent outside and the time spent in each other's presence, for yeah. sure. That's And then actually we were talking, you know, about how, you know, urban space and our understanding of it has changed. Um, I think the pandemic has pushed more people to be more invested in gardening for themselves. Um, Certainly, I remember that seed selling companies had like their best like year ever in some cases. And uh, my dog is now starting to bark. I think there's just... One more. Yeah, one more question. So any artists, podcasts, books, platforms you would uh, like to recommend? Um, for any artist out there, I would say stop reading about art and start reading about history or economics. Um, and I would say to read anything by Dan Barber, the food journalist I mentioned, anything by MFK Fisher, who was a very important post-war food journalist, a woman as well. And um, just so sassy. Oh my gosh. I love her. Um, And uh, Mark Kurlansky also does really good economic histories, which are very inspiring. They're like single source. He wrote a book just about paper and another book just about salt. Okay. World according to the trade of salt. Like, is that just me that's excited about that? That's okay. Um, But anyway, I think that just reading about other people and how people work together to achieve common goals will be pretty inspiring to anybody. Yeah. 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 Uh, So that's, that's my last question. Uh, It was lovely to have a conversation with you. I think it was very productive. Well, I think it was, (laughs) I hope it was. 
I really appreciate your time. Thank you for reaching out and um, we'll be in touch. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and if you did, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow in your favorite app so that you don't miss upcoming episodes. Find the show notes with links and resources at our website and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at insightsofaneco.artist and let us know your takeaway. Enjoying the show? Support Insights of an Echo Artist on Patreon for bonus resources, access to our private community and more.